Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pseudo Podcast. I'm Ori. And I'm Nick. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Today, we're going to talk about a subject near and dear to every developer's heart, models. They almost live at the core of nearly all of our development work. They underpin all of computer science, but what the heck are they, Nick? It's a great question, Ori, and one that I'm super happy you were interested in answering for this podcast. I think that model is quite possibly the most overloaded word in the English language. There are just so many things that a person can mean when they talk about a model. Uh, that's frustrating because you're totally right that the concept of models is a foundation of computer science. In fact, I think it's foundational to human cognition. Big if true, I know, but I think I can make a case for it. Yeah, that's a pretty bold statement for sure. I look forward to hearing your arguments and then we'll get there soon. For this episode, let's start from the very beginning. We'll begin with some basics, generic definitions of models, so we're all on the same page. Then we get into your theories about models. Next, we'll talk about models as applied to programming and development. Finally, we'll end with some practical examples of where we frequently run into models and modeling concerns in our jobs. Sounds like a great plan. Then let's get started. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the lead here because uh, this this topic, as I said, is it's a big one for me. Uh, at their core, models are simplified versions of reality. Think about toy cars or model ships. They often look just like the real thing, but they're obviously much simpler. They don't have all the same parts, but they look like the same thing. You know what they are. You can hold that in your mind. Similarly, we often talk about mental models of a thing. We model complex processes in our mind to understand how things work. Basically, all of the ideas we share with one another, we share through mental models. When you're trying to express a complex idea to someone, where do you begin? With an example. We often construct examples which, you know, uh, make clear our point of view, and we share them in a very structured way with the person we're speaking with. Those examples fit our mental model of the thing we're describing. We can share our mental models with other through that example, in other words. Uh, one classic example of this type of model is known as the simple model of rational crime, or the SMORC. It's a mental model about why people commit crimes or cheat or just do bad things that are immoral. Um, it's a relatively simple idea, but it's best conveyed through an example. Um, briefly, the SMORC says, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. In other words, we weigh the possible cost of getting caught doing something wrong against the possible benefit to ourselves. If the benefit outweighs the cost, we're likely to commit the crime. For, for an example that kind of exemplifies this mental model, uh, let's consider a classic psychology experiment that's been used to test this idea. Let's say we have a student who has been told he or she will get $10 for 10 minutes of their time if they just take this short test. They're also told, however, that if they score above a 90% on the test, they'll get an additional $100. The test proctor sits in the room with the student during the test, allegedly to prevent cheating, but in reality, the proctor is a confederate who will do the very opposite. 
Halfway through, the proctor says, I'll be right back, and walks out of the room, leaving an envelope with the answers on the table. Will the student cheat? The smork says he or she should, but hundreds and hundreds of repetitions of this experiment show that it's not that simple. Unfortunately, for rational thinkers everywhere, humans are complex and not always downright rational. For this reason, the smork is flawed. Dan Ariely's The Honest Truth About Dishonesty offers a great treatment on this topic. I would highly encourage you to read it. It's a very interesting book. Um, Still, though, there's other research out there that suggests that the smork does indeed have value. This disagreement in the research community demonstrates that models can be wrong. They can be right. They can be something in between. One thing is for certain, though. They are not accurate representations of the real world. Models make mistakes. Yes, and sometimes those mistakes have serious consequences. For example, we've seen for years now that the black community in the United States is unfairly targeted by the police. A recent example is George Floyd's death. In many of those cases, officers' mental models include a connection between being black and crime or danger. These mental models are flawed, and the real-world results of those flaws are tragic and horrific. Models must be constantly tested against bias and refactored to allow the models to be as accurate as possible. This is not something that is done, and then they say, whoops, my bad, after a model pressed people for decades. Yeah, and... So we, we've seen what a mental model is here and how it can be flawed. And um, I, I think, you know, we can, we can understand that, again, on a, on a core level, a model is a simplified version of reality. And sometimes we simplify incorrectly, but we're simplifying is the idea. Um, we've seen how mental models are used in everyday uh, behavior. Um, and the ones that we discussed were largely focused on human behavior and interaction, which makes sense on a personal level for mental models. But we also use mental models to think about other complex topics like ecosystems, biology, the economy, and other complex systems. Uh, we've also translated these models, these mental models of how ecosystems and the economy and stuff like that works into mathematical concepts. And we've, we've been doing that for a very long time as people. Um, starting with the economy as an example, literature on varying national economic models and strategies dates back to at least the Enlightenment in Europe, and I'm sure long before that. That was the first example that I came up with in my head. Uh, looking back at mercantilism and this idea that you know you wanted to have certain basically guilds producing certain goods and selling that outside of your country, um, and and then protecting those those merchants within your country, uh, there were there was math to support that kind of strategy and idea that was an economic model. Um, that idea was later counteracted by a different economic model known as laissez-faire or free trade. Both ideas, again, had mathematical proof to accompany them, and they relied on simplified versions of the trading process to create those mathematical models. Obviously, you can't model every single transaction between people. That's just not something that we can do. We, there's no way to collect that data, and even if you could... There's no really way to process that data. So they're naturally simplified. 
we use the same sort of model to understand all kinds of processes in our daily lives now. Uh, stuff from everything from plate tectonics to gravitational pull. Some of these models are much more accurate to reality than others because the systems they model can have fewer meaningful inputs or are uh, more strictly physical processes. You could say they're arguably less complex, but comparing, you know, calling gravity not complex in those models is is not, uh, doesn't seem right, for example. But, you know, a gravitational model is going to be a lot more uh, true to reality than, say, a political model where you're trying to determine human sentiment. Those are harder things to map mathematically. So those kind of like sentiment analysis and other models like that are closer to a best guess kind of scenario, and the results will vary widely depending on the initial conditions. Regardless of what we're modeling, though, they all take simplified versions of natural processes and simulate results based on this quote-unquote dumbed-down version of the real thing. They never represent reality with accuracy because they're limited by nature. We don't always That's why we don't always trust models. We have to run them lots of times, and they're still only there to inform our understanding of a process. That's why we can't know just exactly how global change, also known as climate change, or the global economy are working with perfect clarity. That said, models are incredibly valuable. They're not always right, but having an accurate weather forecast is something that we almost always take for granted these days. That's only possible through modeling. Our responses to natural disasters like floods and wildfires are heavily informed by modeling. Those models allow us to respond to problems more quickly and efficiently than we would otherwise. So as we can see, the word model can have a lot of different meanings, but at its core, a model refers to a simplified version of reality, a concept that correlates to a real world thing. Models may be concrete, like a model car or ship, or they may be dynamic, such as climate change models. Interestingly, dynamic models typically rely on concrete models to function. For a climate model to work, we need models for climate data. We can't actually capture a raw picture of the state of the climate, so we have to pick individual indicators that we feel represent the overall state of the climate. We have to model that state. And that's where the models that we typically use in the programming community start to come into play. Data models. The amazing world of data models. In the programming and engineering world, they allow technical and business people communicate requirements that allow the implementation of said model in software development. This is called a data structure. You can think about it like constructing a model with the necessary information to store a user like name, email, password, etc. As a project increases in the complexity, we leverage models to explain how our app interacts with the user and have a clear understanding of the data that's being used. An easy way to get a mental picture of what we mean is to imagine an object in a programming language. We can add properties to that object that dictate what values it needs to be consumed by the application. It can be anything as long as it makes sense you can even have different models that relate to one another, kind of like relational databases. Now let's talk about the different types of data models. So we have the conceptual data model that is a high level model that relates to business structures and concepts 
An example of this is constructing graphs or any visual medium that shows how a user interacts with the application. Then we have a logical data model that it contains descriptions um, of software-related processes, example tables, columns, object-oriented classes, etc. This one refers to the implementation of the conceptual model in code. Then we have the physical data model that describes the physical model and how and where data is stored, sample partitions, CPUs, databases, etc. Lastly, um, the physical model utilizes the logical model to store and use that data. So at the end, we see how it goes from a thought that are the graphs to the implementation that is the code and then the use of those models, for example, a database. So what are the benefits of data modeling? By defining what requirements are needed beforehand and considering different approaches, it can yield higher quality code. You can reduce costs by catching problems with the requirements beforehand. It's easier to fix a data model than to fix errors on software after it is written. Worst case scenario, in customers' hands. Utilizing data models allow engineers to output code faster since all requirements are put to the test beforehand. They can focus on writing the code in confidence. For databases, having a good model will yield higher performance due to how simple it is to tune a model. A model must be crisp and coherent with all the rules laid out to allow an easy transition to database land. Lastly, it will help with better documentation due to how easy it is to edit a model between teams. Models display information without all the tech jargon that can be hard to communicate. In essence, to wrap all this up, it helps communicate requirements and processes easily and efficiently, effectively reducing the time for the implementation of and use of that model. Now that we saw the good parts, let's see the bad parts of this. We briefly talked about this. So these examples I'm gonna show you are taken from the book Weapons of Math Destruction, so M-A-T-H, written by Kelly O'Neill. I will recommend you read it, it's a great read. So the first one is people losing opportunity to apply, apply to a university. We've seen that because the application process can be biased due to ethnicity, color, and wealth, people can be rejected from a prestigious university. Also, because universities are ranked, they try to cut corners to be one of the top universities, filtering students out that could get the degree. People not able to get a loan, lease, or a job due to credit scores. Credit scores are a very bad indicator on the ability of someone to pay anything. There are many reasons why you can accumulate debt even though it's not your fault, like losing a loved one or a job and not finding one quick enough. I've also seen for myself that sometimes my credit score goes down because I either paid my debt quickly or a random reason. These data models are close and we cannot really observe them to test them out and make sure that they are accurate. Then we have the highly targeted ads that can tell what you want at that exact time. These models are trained so well because we feed them information like what music we like, movies, places we frequent, etc. 
at a certain point, they can tell what you want before you even think about it. That one freaks me out. I tell you what, I got uh, our our mutual friend Josh, uh, guy from work, uh, frequently refers to his his phone. He he will call Siri wiretap. That's his nickname for Siri. And the longer that I've had my Google Pixel, the more accurate I think that is. Because I swear I've had conversations places where there was nothing else around no, certainly hadn't authorized google to be listening and i'll get an ad for that thing i was talking about within an hour of the conversation it's freaky it it is very freaky and one way i think about it is when you start dating someone you ask these questions like what movies you like music restaurants etc to get a better understanding of the person this is technically what Google does with their models, only that they are fed data from thousands of individuals, making a model pretty much a creepypasta. It's um, crazy how much data they handle. That's, uh, that's a pretty good analogy, and a nice mental model of the problem there. Lastly, we have bad feedback loops if the model is not checked for bias, making scientific research inaccurate. Due to the fact that if not checked for bias, our training data will be inaccurate to reality. We can see this with crimes predictive models like we talked before. Let's say that cops freak in a black community and they make some arrests. Let's say 10, just uh, to put a number, even if it's petty crimes. Lamala will then think, hey, this area might have more crime, leading to more arrests, and it keeps repeating itself. So you can see... This can lead to a corrupted model that hurts society. Uh, we think that Terminators are bad, but humans with uh, alongside machines might be just as bad. Yeah, that's one that's showed up a lot in the news recently is uh, specifically bias and facial recognition algorithms. Um, those data sets don't seem to have been trained well on non-white people, which seems like a pretty huge oversight. But uh, actually, just here in the Detroit area recently, there was a story about a man who uh, was arrested for no reason by the police based on a very poor match from a facial recognition algorithm. So this is a real problem that's affecting people all the time. Yes, facial recognition has been targeting black people, and it should not be this way. These models should be trained for bias, but it's just something that has not been done, and this is not okay. No, it's not. No, it's not. We should... For something that shows up so much in our daily lives, uh, they should be something that we pay close attention to. Um, speaking of our daily lives, Ori, we're programmers. We use models all the time. We sure do. And now we have a great example of how we use them in the trying times of COVID over the last few months. Our company, Doc Network, just recently released a tool for COVID pre-screening that requires a lot of data modeling work. Yes, indeed. Uh, our software, because I don't think we've described it before, is the leading electronic health record system for camps and schools. Uh, we offer all kinds of health and safety tools through our web applications, CampDoc and SchoolDoc. Most recently, we've added a third application simply called the Doc Network application for anyone to use if they desire, such as employers who have co-located workspaces or you know, like warehouse managers or people like that. Uh, so it's not just for camps and schools anymore. Um, definitely check it out if, if you need a health records solution. Uh, we're proud to work on it. But 
Back to our pre-screening tool. It offers a way for uh, our users to ask their employees, students, or participants a set of questions regarding their potential exposure to COVID-19 on a regular basis to ensure that everyone in their organization remains as safe as possible. So from a modeling standpoint, we needed three separate data models to make that work. We needed to model the participant or employee, the questionnaire that they needed to respond to, and their response to that questionnaire. We already had, number one, the participant or employee taken care of because we've had to model people in our application many times before. We, we refer to that as a profile. Um, we did have to come up with new models for the questionnaire and responses, though, as well as relationship models between all three of those resources. When we began the projects, we had three basic requirements for our product owners. Allow the clients to collect whatever information they want to collect. Two, allow clients to report on that information. And three, allow participants, employees, to complete this form on a regular basis. So given those minimal constraints, we got to work. We had similar data models already for other parts of our application. So we tried to construct stuff that match our existing paradigms. We did this because one, we were already biased towards our existing mental models of the problem, and two, because those models have worked pretty well for us. I mean, don't fix what isn't broken, am I right? As long as we're sure it isn't broken, I totally agree. <laughs> Fortunately, we got good at planning for things to break. We knew we were <laughs> going to have to change things because we were working in a rapid development cycle. Therefore, we made our own requirements that our data model had to be flexible so that we could easily refactor it as changes um, arose. And I want to jump in and say that that's a major key for any software project. Good plans are super important, but a good plan never survives first contact with implementation. Those are words to live by. The best plans are flexible ones that leave room for deciding implementation details on the fly. In our case, the place we had to be the most flexible was on the questionnaire itself. We refer to those as templates because they're a template for the response data model. And that was our biggest unknown. Yeah, and we initially only had three questions that were pretty fine, and we researched to be the most efficient when asking COVID-19 questions. The three questions were temperature, do you have any COVID-19 um, symptoms, and upload a photo of your thermometer. Clients could rewrite the labels of those questions and choose whether each question was required, but that was the extent of all the customization we allowed. We made those choices because we wanted to get this thing out of the door as quickly as possible so people could start using that. Our ideas match the requirements of our, from our product owners. Our product owners support this implementation, but would our users actually support this? That's something we worked really hard on at Doc Network, particularly in the past several months, is uh, integrating user experience research into our development workflows. Um, we're a long way from where we want to be, but we do have a good loop of internal feedback to operate on. Um, and this is jumping back really quick to what Ori was mentioning earlier about the benefits of good data models. This is the first place to validate a good data model. A lot of people think about you know data models as being a strictly backend thing that lives in, in server land and it doesn't have much to do with the user. That's completely false. If your data model doesn't support the needs of your user, it's not a good model. 
So um, when we demoed our, our Figma prototype of the simple design Ori just described, people liked it. They also immediately asked us if they're able to add other types of questions. They certainly wanted to be able to have more than three questions, and we quickly realized that we wouldn't be able to anticipate all the needs of our clients. We needed to build something a lot more flexible than what we had. We had to tweak our data models. We had to go back and do that refactoring that Ori was mentioning if we wanted to see the benefits of good data modeling. Fortunately, we designed with these problems in mind. Uh, and the actual change to a fully dynamic setup for questions was relatively small and fit within our existing architecture. Based on the feedback we received from Figma Designs and Maze, Maze is a way to get um, testing data rolling with your Figma, Figma Designs. We tweaked our pre-screening tool to allow more customization, bringing back the dynamic questions, and they loved it. They also asked for exchanging the text that we had on each step of the tool. We have the form state, the uh, confirmation state, and then the submission state. We allow those changes, making the template feel more personal. And then we got feedback from organizations that it made them truly happy to be able to edit a template to fit their needs. Ori, I got to say, I'm really proud of our team on this one. The commitment that we made at the start to flexibility paid off big time, and everyone won because of it. Our clients have been really happy with this tool, and it's something that I know I, and I, I'm sure you as well, are very proud to have shipped. We made that commitment, but what did that look like in practice? What were some of the key decisions we built our data models on that allowed us to respond to this kind of feedback? We knew we needed some data to be present on any template, like a unique identifier. It needed to be associated with an organization and then it needed a name. But when it came to the questions, we needed a loose data structure that allowed any question to be present in whatever order the organization needs since they can move the questions. To summarize the data model, we had an organization that has a template. A template has questions that can either be predefined, dynamic, or both. Then we have a profile of a user that answers the questions. Because our data model for the response is directly based on the data model for the template, the questions, changes to the template data model were almost immediately reflected in the answer data model that let us maximize flexibility while maintaining all relationships we needed. The key and the reason we could do this is that our data models are simplified versions of the information we're trying to collect, bringing it full circle right back to the start. <laughs> we have to make sacrifices in terms of how much info we can collect and the way we can ask those questions. However, those same sacrifices and data richness allow us to build more flexible systems because we can rely on our assumptions about the inputs. Wow. I'm so glad I got all that off my chest. I've had the word, like my like the word model is overloaded rant stored up inside myself for like five years now. I swear, since the first like two months of grad school in 2015, everything is a freaking model. Feels good, man. For me, it was more of a nuanced topic. Like you hear it all the time on the news, but truly never sat down to understand what it really means. After doing a bit of research, I felt way better about the topic and piece it together to what people say when speaking of a model, since it can mean very different things depending on what we're talking about. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you had that experience researching this, and I, I hope that we were, we've been able to give our, our listeners a similar experience. So uh, thanks so much for, for listening to us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something about data models and how they operate in the real world. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Um, next time, we're going to tackle a question, what the heck is a serverless architecture? In the meantime, if you're really curious, I got a blog post over on CommitHub site, that is CommitHub.com, that explains what is serverless architecture. Go check it out, and we'll see you soon. Have a great day.